Well, here's a question I want to run by you this morning. Is Jesus Christ, as presented in the scriptures, enough to be our joy and our strength and our unity? Is Jesus Christ, as presented in the scriptures, our joy and our unity? Some in the early church were saying, no, Christ is not enough. In fact, uh, there were religious additions to the whole notion of Christ. Christ was quickly or possibly becoming a, a sideline to the, uh, the nature of the early church. So the question that was surfacing in the day is whether or not the Apostle Paul would tamper with the gospel in order to make it more palatable to those who were finding the teachings of the early church unacceptable. And so we ask the same question, because the grave danger of our age is the sheer numbers of individuals who are what I would call gospel negotiators masquerading as teachers of truth. In um, Frank Thielman's commentary on the book of Philippians, he references Thomas Oden's written work called Requiem, A Lament in Three Movements, whereby he discusses the struggle of Christians to hold fast to theological boundaries. And he gives some of the reasons. One, many of us have been duped by so-called truth-impassioned leaders who under the guise of claiming that they absolutely were committed to the truth distorted the gospel to gain a personal following. And so for some of us, We are shying away from our boldness to take an extreme position on the scriptures, lifting up our hands saying, who can you trust? Second, the sheer magnitude of and force of harassment by the social surgeons of our day who are now blaming Christianity for every social disgrace. And we don't want to be counted among them. Many of us are jettisoning our commitment and boldness and passion and courage to stand for the truth because we are being maligned for our stand. In fact, in um, Jean-Jacques Rousseau's take on social reality in his book called The Social Contract, Oxford University Press, He writes this, it is impossible to live in peace with those we believe to be damned. Therefore, Christians are as dangerous to social order as Islamic extremists. And third, the the internal social force of so-called Christian racists, and I put the quotations around the word Christian because It's an oxymoron to use the word Christian juxtaposed to racist. But the so-called Christian racists, racist and legalist abusers among us who intimidate 
timid leaders of the gospel into distorting the truth of God's word to accommodate their bias, their prejudice, their traditional tastes, and matters of the physical. It is still not heard of for white youth pastors in rural America losing their jobs for inviting African-American kids to church. And against all of these things, against all of these opposing pressures, the Apostle Paul, who was no stranger to these kinds of issues in his day, urgently pleads in his letter to the Philippians to draw theological boundaries from scriptural truth and don't budge on these boundaries. Every generation must stake its claim on the exclusivity of joy and unity found in the gospel truth once for all delivered to the saints. We cannot, we must not sell the true gospel for some other preferred joy or unity. And how is that going to happen? I would suggest by crack-proofing the foundations of our faith. So, would you turn in your Bibles this morning to Philippians? Philippians chapter 3, as we sort of hit the homeward stretch of this particular letter, because the Apostle Paul begins this particular section by saying, finally, even though he's only halfway done his letter. Sounds like a preacher, really. Finally. So I'm going to start the sermon this morning with, finally. You're going to think, hey, this is good. We're out of here in five, ten minutes. No, it's not going to work out that way. Finally, my brothers, Philippians 3.1, rejoice in the Lord. I want to say, and again I say rejoice, but that's later on in the letter. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard to you. Note that statement. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. We'll talk about this. For it is written, we who, we who are the circumcision, sorry, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Can that be your verse? Is that your verse? For whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God is by faith. 
we'll leave it there for today. This is God's word to us. Father, as we um, heed this urgent warning from the Apostle Paul, it is as relevant today as it was the day Paul wrote this letter. We face in the church a constant onslaught of those who would try to remove the precious truth of the gospel, who would try to tamper with uh, theological truths, who would try, O oh God, to accommodate other ideas, who would seek to add to the perfect truth of the good news of salvation found in Christ alone, who would claim, O oh God, that there are certain religious rituals, there are certain issues that must be done, certain ceremonies that must be added, certain ways we must be for our salvation. Our Father, I pray that we as your church would guard the deposit of truth that has been given to us. We would guard it with a passion and a boldness in spite of all those around us who are seeking to erode the truth. Attack from within and attack from without. As we gather together today on this Lord's, in this Lord's Day on this Canada Day, we pray, O oh God, that we would be a beacon of light and truth to our country and that we would hold fast to the good news that our salvation comes through faith alone in Christ alone, plus nothing. For Jesus' sake I pray, amen. Well, in a cultural moment like the one we live in that lacks theological clarity increasingly, confusion between externals and saving faith and what that really means, lacking courage and therefore struggling with right boundaries to truth, caving in to those around us, we must know and draw clear boundaries to the truth. And I want to share with you from the text that the Apostle Paul has given us this morning in Philippians through the direction of the Holy Spirit, four clear boundaries for us today. And I like this word where he uses safeguard in verse 1. This is a safeguard for us. This will secure you, in other words, from falling into the trap of those around us with their um, close-sounding teachings, but not truth. So let's pay careful attention. The starting point in terms of these establishing boundaries is to rejoice in the Lord. It's a command, by the way. You are commanded by your commanding officer this morning to rejoice in the Lord. Regardless of the week that you've had or the day that you're, ha you're having or the week that you're anticipating, rejoice. Not just rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. It's a command that works its way throughout both the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's an enduring proposition Given to, given to us by our Lord. I ask you this morning, if you could uh, 
write the storyline of your life. And it could be established based on the, the most ideal director. If you could create the person who would direct the ideal living situation and conditions for you, what would it be? And who would he be? What would he be like? Wouldn't you want for someone who was in charge of your life to be completely, powerfully dominant over all things in creation? Wouldn't you want the person who is taking care of planning your life to be completely in charge of everything there is in creation? I would. That would be, that would be my starting point. If I could have anybody... if. who was was looking over my life and planning my life, I would want that person to be dominantly in charge of all things. The second thing that I would want is I would want to know that that person loved me. If I had those two things, the dominant person who loved me choreographing the details of my life, I could rejoice. Well, brothers and sisters, I have good news for you. That's precisely who is dominantly in charge of our lives. That's why Paul can come to us and say, brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. The one who is looking after you is Lord over all. He is Lord. He's in charge. The one who is looking out for you loves you with everlasting love. So I know that this one who loves me is looking out for my best interests and is dominant, therefore can make such things happen. That's why we rejoice in the Lord. The Bible goes on to ask us the question, do you want to be weak in life? Then stop rejoicing in the Lord. Because the joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Let's not forget the point of the Philippians letter. The theme is joy. The theme is joy because the theme is Jesus. And where Jesus is, there is joy. And where there is joy in the Lord, we are strong. Where we neglect to rejoice in the Lord, we become weak. So that's what he, why he commands us. I want you to know that compromise in our lives begins when we search when we search for or seek to find our joy in things rather than in Jesus. That's when compromise begins. That's why he can lead off this security uh, statement, this this safeguard teaching by saying, brothers and sisters, If you want to be certain that you will not compromise your faith, then make sure that you lock and load your joy in Jesus. Because if you seek your joy in anything or anyone besides Jesus, you will begin to compromise in order to attain that joy. If your joy is in joy itself, or in unity, or in acceptance, or in health, 
or in wealth or in any number of things you can name, if your joy is sourced in any of those things, you will compromise your faith in order to attain the joy in the things that you are seeking joy from. That's what's happening in our world. It automatically will set the stage for moving the boundaries. That's why Paul said at the very front end of this, rejoice in the Lord. If you don't rejoice in the Lord, you will move the boundaries of your faith. So rejoice in the Lord. And then he goes on, secondly, to a section that he doesn't give us a lot of description in. He just says, watch out for those dogs. Now, Paul um, is a little bit emotional here. Uh, in fact, the English translation does not express how completely um, how completely uh, angry and upset and politically incorrect, incorrect Paul is. He's talking about those, watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. He is talking about those, and we find out from other places in the scripture, who are claiming that the only way you can please God and satisfy God is to be circumcised. That's what he's saying. That's what he's opposed to. He's opposed to those who are claiming that there is some ritual act of the body that can be done to the flesh that will bring one into a right relationship with God. It's not Jesus, it's circumcision. For Paul, he's, he's just aghast at this. Because Jesus Christ has gone to the cross to die for our sins, that by having faith in him, we might be made right before God. And now there are those coming around to these fledgling churches, these brand new Christians, and saying to them, no, no, that's not how you are made right before God. You must follow the ancient rituals of Israel. Paul calls them dogs. Now, Jews generally hated dogs, the four-legged creatures. They considered them an unclean animal. I'll go no further with any description about that. And in fact, the prejudice that the Jews had toward the Gentiles was to regularly call the Gentiles dogs. Because that was the worst slam you could use. So when Paul is calling these people dogs, he gives us, um, he gives us license and um, help to understand the emotion that we should have toward anyone who puts at risk the gospel, the true gospel, before those who are newer in the, the faith. Calls them dogs. So watch out, he says, for the dogs who insist on domesticating real worship, who are grounding the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ into human effort. 
who are claiming that somehow we can be saved by religious ritual prerequisites. Now, throughout all of the scriptures, God has given us many markers and many fences that are helpful on the outside. Many ceremonies, many things. Circumcision is not bad in of itself. It was a command of, the, of, the, of Israel. It was a sign. It was to be a sign externally of an internal reality that these people had set that were set apart for God to be in covenant with God by faith in God. Circumcision was an act, an outward act, to symbolize an inner reality. But as with virtually every ceremony and every ritual, there is a tendency for people to start to put faith in the ritual and the ceremony instead of the object of their faith, which is God himself. That's the danger of ritual and ceremony. That's why our forefathers in our movement of evangelicalism purposely removed as much ritual and ceremony as could be removed without ignoring the commands of the scriptures. So when you come to an average Baptist church, there's not a lot of ritual and ceremony. There's not a lot of stand up now, sit down now, kneel now, say this, say that. There's not wave this, have this smoke. We don't have all this stuff. Because human nature, as it is, is inclined to start to make the activity the object of our faith instead of the living God who it's supposed to point us to to be the object of our faith. And so uh, the storyline of God's truth has always been to run a a holistic um, theological marriage between the physical person and our spiritual nature, who we are. We are the only creatures in all creation that are both physical and spiritual. The only creatures. And and so God has knit together activities and actions that are symbols physically of spiritual realities. The the biggest one for us or the biggest two for us are, are the Lord's table and baptism. Each of these ceremonies are outward activities that point us to inward realities, inward spiritual realities. And so it is critical that we understand that, that, that Israel, by circumcision, was, physical, was demonstrating a physical commitment to a spiritual reality. They weren't saved by the external act. Circumcision didn't save the Jew. It was only a symbol of an internal reality. If they rejected faith in God, circumcision couldn't help them. That's why Paul is so aghast at this, that they would come and suggest that people needed to be circumcised in order to to have faith in Christ. 
because it must be from the heart. The grand human flaw is that, that we have a tendency to rely on physical actions rather than what is taking place in terms of the heart. Our heart is credentialed by God alone, by our acceptance of faith in Christ. You see, we get confused because in much of our life, ceremonies and rituals qualify us for what we are. Uh, this time of the year, of course, there are many... Uh, there are many of those kinds of things, particularly graduations. Uh, most of us have probably been to a graduation of some sort in the last couple of weeks. And the graduation, the actual external act, the, the things that have been done are now qualifying us for what we are. So the ceremony and the ritual in a normal human practice is very meaningful to us because it actually moves us as the object toward what we are. But that's deadly in the Christian context because it is not our ceremony and ritual. It's our relationship with God that makes all the difference in the world. It's a total matter of the heart. And so when you have uh, people uh, coming and gathering and worshiping the Lord, we have to be very careful because in a in a Christ alone, faith alone in Christ-based ministry like ours, it is very conceivable that some people have become misguided, even within our own congregation, and are relying on a works and effort-based life to be right with God. We need to understand that, that in many ways, at times, we're not very far off of the very things that Paul was concerned about here. We have to be very careful in our gatherings that we rightly divide the issues of the physical, the issues of the emotional, and the issues of spiritual. It is highly possible to come into a place like this, a gathering like this, and, and to start worshiping the fences and the symbols and the markers as opposed to what those symbols and markers represent. It is possible for us to start to worship the works of our hands more than we think we are. If we saw that someone would come up here and carve an idol this morning and say, look at this, worship this, we would say, get out of here. But it's very easy for us to start to worship the works of our own hands, the ceremonies that we produce, the buildings that we create. People who come in and sit and stand and recite and sit and kneel and listen and then leave and think, hey, I really knocked it out of the park today. I'm a saved man because of those things. Or we come into a church like this and there's certain music or certain atmosphere or certain feel-good participation, and we feel better for having been here, and we're resting our salvation on those things of emotion as opposed to the reality in Christ. So Paul says, no, for it is we who are the circumcision. And then he goes on to describe who are really those in faith who, who belong to the Lord. We who worship by the Spirit of God. We who glory in Christ Jesus, and we who put no confidence in the flesh, 
Do you understand this? What Paul says here, no, not physical, not emotional, it's spiritual. It is our connection to the Lord Jesus Christ through our faith in Christ alone. It is by Jesus, by our real connection to Jesus Christ we are saved. It is for Jesus, not about our cool church or about our trendy pastor, (laughs) Nick, or about... Boasting about our great fences and boundaries theologically. It is our boast in Christ alone. We need to be very careful. We won't say, our church is so great. No, our Christ is so great. And our church is an expression of the greatness of our Christ. There's a fine line between allowing yourself to slip into that place where you start to make the object of your worship, the physical things around you, the cool things around you, the church that you're a part of, instead of the Christ who owns you. This was critical to Paul. It's critical to us. And it's in Jesus and what he has done for us, not what we have done for him. Only what he has done counts. And what he has done is sufficient For all we need in salvation. Do do you know that? Do you believe that? What Jesus Christ has done is totally and completely sufficient for your salvation. Plus nothing else. Paul is unrestrained in his passionate opposition to anyone who would mislead people in any other way than this. It is unthinkable that we could be made right before God through ritual and ceremony. But it is even more unthinkable that anyone would claim you can't be right with God without ritual and ceremony. Circumcision wasn't bad, it was commanded. But as a sign of faith, not an object of faith. Baptism can't save you. The Bible can't save you. Church attendance can't save you. Family tradition can't save you. Only Jesus can save you. So Paul goes on to say, look, if you guys want to talk about credentials of the flesh, if you want to talk about ceremony and ritual, if you want to talk about someone who was the right person in the right place at the right time with the right t-shirt, I'm it, Paul says. If you want to talk about confidence and self-effort, I'm the poster child So thirdly, he says, look at put no confidence in heritage or religious credentials. Now look at, let's understand something. Because you can get, we can get very confused in this text and go off and start to uh, trash the Old Testament and then start to say New Testament is all we should be looking at and the Old Testament was bad. The Old Testament's not on trial here. That's not what's, that's not what is happening. Paul's Old Testament teaching and lifestyle efforts weren't on trial. 
The Old Testament is not a legalistic document unless it was made so. Just like the New Testament is not a legalistic document, but it can be made into one. The problem for the Old Testament saint or the New Testament person is the same. Faith in religious ceremony, heritage, tradition, or faith in God. It's always been that. It's always been the issue. Otherwise, no Old Testament people could have ever been saved. They were saved the same way we're saved. They were saved by faith in God, the same as we are. And that's what's always on trial. And that's what our vi- we need to be constantly vigilant over in our lives, in our thinking, in our teaching. Paul is writing here, if being a good Jew was a ticket to heaven, Paul was in. If being a man of faith in God, though, rather than faith in a religious system and personal effort, Paul was damned. That's what he realized when Jesus came. Paul realized that he had allowed his life to slip from faith in God to faith in ritual and ceremony. Paul had allowed his life to become confident in the flesh. Paul had allowed his life to be confident in his circumcision, in his Israeli heritage, in his tribal traditions, in the fact that he was zealous as a Pharisee, in the fact that he had persecuted the church that was some sort of cult as far as he was concerned, stealing people away from Israel, and in legalistic righteousness, in other words, keeping the law, he was faultless. So faultless, he went and murdered people. And I think Paul became, started to realize, wait a second, there's some discombobulation between my claim to be righteous through the law and my breaking of the law by killing people in church. So let's understand that um, so heinous is religion-based external zeal which is this whole section that he's talking about here. And confidence in the flesh, in religion, in rituals, in heritage, based on pride in efforts, that it can lead one to actually murder people. As extremists, misguided, always do. By the way, flesh isn't bad. God created it good, but confidence in it is. So let's understand a few things, beloved. Catechism isn't bad, it's good, but it didn't die on Calvary, as Stuart Briscoe notes. And church history didn't rise again for us, Jesus did. So we don't put confidence in these things. So Paul says, I've gladly cashed everything in for knowing Christ. In fact, for the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. Is that how you would frame your relationship with Jesus? Is that how you would frame your definition and understanding of where joy comes from? I've cashed in everything for the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. That's not um, all-star Christianity from Paul's perspective. 
That's normal Christianity. That's what it means to be a believer. To have as a backdrop all the other things that we sought to make us happy, that we sought to rely on, that we hoped could help us, that we hoped could lead us to freedom, that failed us miserably. Over against all of those things, Paul discovered Jesus who set him entirely free. And he says to all with boldness and willing to, to call all opposition to this, the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus is worth getting rid of everything else. So I want to give you just a quick overview of what that really means. What does it mean to really know Christ? Knowing Christ is this. It's acknowledging God's great act of deliverance through Jesus Christ and submitting to Christ's leadership. What does knowing Christ really mean? This is not just something in my head. This is something that transforms my life because Christ comes in and changes everything. It's acknowledging God's great act of deliverance in Christ alone and submitting to Christ's lordship. So the, the fourth and final point this morning is this. Put no trust in self-made righteousness. Put no trust. This is why he, in, the, in verses 7 and 8, spends two verses with a really long, long sentence about righteousness. What does that look like? It, it's, it means this. You can't know Christ through heritage or ritual, or ceremony, or symbols tattooed on your chest. You can only know Christ as God grants you the gift of righteousness and faith in Christ. And let me break that down for you. Stuart Briscoe, in his commentary on this text identifies two kinds of knowledge. Preparatory knowledge and personal knowledge. Paul here is talking, when he says the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ, he is not talking about preparatory knowledge. He is talking about personal knowledge. Way too many people in churches across our land have only experienced Jesus at the preparatory knowledge level and not the personal knowledge. What do we mean by this? The preparatory knowledge is to acknowledge Jesus Christ as a fact. There, this country labels itself a preparatory knowledge country, increasingly fading, but calling itself a Christian country is a preparatory knowledge statement. People in our country, again, increasingly decreasing, but, but people in our country have a preparatory knowledge of Christ and think they're Christians. They think because they believe in Christ as a fact that they are Christians. And I, now I'm going to narrow it down to just this room this morning or anybody who happens to check us out online this is a critical moment for all of us today. 
Do you only have a preparatory knowledge of Jesus or do you have a personal knowledge of Jesus? A preparatory knowledge welcomes the facts about Jesus. That Jesus is the Son of God. That Jesus came to earth. Christmas. That Jesus died on a cross. And he went there allegedly for the sins of people. And that he rose again from the grave. That's a preparatory knowledge of Jesus. By the way, the demons and Satan have a preparatory knowledge of Jesus. Everything I've just shared with you, they know. Are they Christians? Is Satan a Christian? Is this a hard question? Or is it so simple you don't even want to answer me? I need to know that you know. Well, maybe. I don't know. It could be. He knows Jesus. I guess so. Hey, guys, he's not a Christian, okay? Are demons Christians? <sighs> music to my ears. Theological music to my ears. Are people who have preparatory knowledge of Christ Christians? No. Paul says this, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the, to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That moves it from preparatory to personal. My Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Personal knowledge, not preparatory knowledge. And be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own. Preparatory knowledge people are always people who are relying on a righteousness of their own. Not relying on a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Personal knowledge moves to Christ as my Lord, my Savior, found in Him, granted a righteousness from God through faith in Christ. Knowing Christ, then, is a change in perspective, a change in position, and a change in possession. Thank you, Stuart Briscoe. The perspective, all things as loss. I have offloaded competition to Christ as my joy. You know, we started out this morning with that. Do you have, is your joy found in anything other than Christ, because it will lead you to compromise. I'm saying now our change in perspective is this, that all things are lost compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ, of having Christ. My joy is in Him. It's a change of position. I'm now found in Him. The only safe place to be is in Christ as my Lord 
and my Savior and my God. And then I receive a righteousness from God that is by faith. From trusting in my own righteousness, self-effort, circumcision, religious heritage, rituals, ceremonies, something your parents did for you, that's a righteousness of self-effort. To a righteousness that comes from God through faith in Christ Jesus alone. This is a gift of God to us where he, because of Christ and what Christ has done, has qualified us for salvation. And by faith in what Christ has done, not just knowing what Christ has done, but by appropriating it personally into my life, saying, I need that in my life. I need my sins forgiven. He regards us as innocent and no longer guilty before God. That's what it means to have acquired the righteousness of Christ. We are now regarded. We don't become sinless. We are regarded as righteous. That's why anybody who teaches that after you've come to faith in Christ, you no longer have to confess your sins, is misguided theologically. We are regarded as righteous, and therefore, from this point forward, regarded as innocent and guiltless before God. Which means this, not having a righteousness of my own, which is the religion of the world, not choosing my own way any longer to somehow have God happy with me, not trying to keep the law in my own strength through my own self-effort, but paying careful attention to the truth that this salvation is only available by faith in Christ's death in our place to pay the penalty for our sin. That is the only reason that God will forgive you. And if you refuse this, you reject salvation. It is impossible to come to know Christ but through the teachings of Christianity. Therefore, let us wind this up with a summary. So the boundary lines. What are our boundary lines? We must know our boundary lines. We believe if we have personal knowledge of Christ and not just preparatory knowledge, we believe that the righteousness that comes from God whereby we are regarded as innocent of our sins and acquitted from God's judgment cannot be acquired by human effort. It is from God. Is not acquired by everyone because it requires faith in Jesus Christ. You cannot have peace with God outside of the Christian gospel. It requires nothing beyond faith in Christ. Beware of any movement that makes activities on par with faith in Christ. And therefore necessary for salvation. And finally, is all that is required to be in fellowship with others. Hear me on this. This salvation is not a Baptist salvation. This salvation is a found in Christ salvation. And wherever 
anyone is found in Christ, we are in fellowship with that person. They belong to the family of God. There may be different styles, there may be different preferences, but if one is found in Christ, they are in fellowship with everyone else who is found in Christ. That's what we believe. So since the best of human effort we've learned will fall short for acquittal in God's final judgment, we reject confidence in anything but righteousness that comes from God. So I have a big, big, important question for you this morning as we conclude. Do you have this righteousness? What righteousness again? A righteousness that comes from God through faith in Christ. Do you have this righteousness? This is a yes-no answer. Here this morning, you either can say yes or you say no. If you say yes, you are regarded by God as innocent. Your sins have been forgiven. You've been acquitted of final judgment. But if you say no and you are relying on a righteousness of your own or self-effort or somehow good behavior or somehow trying to be a good person to gain the favor of God, you are not acquitted of his judgment and you are still lost in your sins and you are still dead in your trespasses and sins and you are still found alienated from God and locked into a life that lacks freedom. So I call on you this morning to trust in Jesus from preparatory knowledge to personal knowledge by inviting him to be your Lord and Savior and to forgive you of your sins, to come into your life and transform you and then to follow him all the days of your life. Father, we pray this morning as this gospel truth has been fenced in again according to the truth in a cultural context where accommodation and drift by gospel negotiators who are posing as teachers of truth like the dogs of the day of Paul. Oh God, deliver us from such things and may our, the pulpits across our land and the words that come from our mouth be the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ, that salvation is found in no other than faith in Christ alone, who is our Savior, who is the one who died for us in our place. Oh God, we rejoice in the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope that truly is your testimony this morning. The greatest tragedy, beloved, in the room this morning would be for someone to miss the salvation of Jesus Christ by 12 inches, to know about him in your head, but not to be found in him in your heart. Our churches are filled with people 
who are trusting in what they know instead of in whom they know. Trusting in what they do instead of in what has been done for them by Christ. So as we go to prayer this morning, I ask the question again. Do you have a righteousness that comes from God by faith in Christ? Yes or no? And as we bow our heads, if the answer is no, but this morning Christ is speaking to your heart and you're saying, Pastor, would you pray for me? Because I'm either not sure or it's no and I want Christ. When we bow our heads and pray, I'm just going to invite you to raise your hand. Would you bow your heads right now for me? If there's anyone in here this morning who says, I'm not sure. I don't know how to answer that question, but I want to be able to answer that question for sure. Is there anybody here who would raise their hand and say, Pastor, would you pray for me? Okay. Anybody else? Yes. Anyone else? Is there anyone who said no, but I want that righteousness? Would you raise your hand? Is there anybody? At the end of the service, some of our pastors will be down here in the front. If you raised your hand this morning, would you please come and see us so we can talk to you about this most profound and important question of your life. Please come and see us. Our Father and our God, we praise you and we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we can be found in Christ, not by a righteousness of our own self-effort, but by a righteousness granted us by a gift of God through faith in what Jesus has done for us. Thank you, God, for this salvation, so rich and so free. We praise you and we rejoice in the Lord, and we are grateful for the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ, for whose sake we consider all things rubbish. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.